hope you don't mind, but I asked the elders if we could turn this worship, or I guess the devotional hour, into a Bible class. I hope that's okay. I know that I and speak really loud. I guess that was made apparent last night. So I apologize to the people in the front few rows. I can put my mask back on if you want me to. I'm totally cool with that. Um, the one thing you should know about me going into this is that I absolutely love Bible classes way more than I like sermons. And I don't think that says more about anything about my sermons. I just really enjoy the give and take. I really enjoy Bible classes. So every opportunity I can take to turn a sermon into a Bible class, I'm going to do that. That being said, I heavily rely on audience participation. So if you have a comment or a thought or a question, feel free to bring it out. Um, I guarantee you that you cannot bring up something that is so far out of left field that you'll throw me off. If you do, I have gold stars in my Bible. I will be sure to hand you one. I don't mind that at all. Um, it's, I've heard probably everything you can think of, but if you surprise me, that's great. I'm more than willing to take that as well. Today we're going to study a, a topic that I feel like is really important. It seems fitting when you do a Bible class to talk about the subject of Bible study. And I think Bible study is one of those topics that alongside prayer is oftentimes talked about, but usually not really discussed in really practical, down-to-earth type terms. And I think if I'm being honest with all of us, I would say that there's probably a lot of times where we don't really particularly enjoy Bible study. And I think it's primarily because of that second word, study. A lot of us associate that with school that we may or may not have enjoyed. We don't really enjoy kind of looking into the, to the deep words and to the, to the Hebrew and the Greek and kind of looking at commentaries. And so we don't really tend to enjoy that. And we, especially when you get to certain parts of scripture, it gets a little bit more tough than other places. For instance, at Hillside right now, we've committed to reading the Bible in the entirety over the course of the year. Every weekday morning, I get on the Facebook page. We read sections of the Bible. We're hopefully going to make it throughout the entire year. I'll tell you right now that reading parts of Leviticus is not only really hard, but it's also really awkward when you're doing it in public. And so public Bible study is really tough for a lot of us. And so the title of this lesson or this class is one tip that I believe that will supercharge your Bible study. And that headline was intended to be clickbaity. So if you think that it's just me kind of putting up a line up there, you're exactly right. I think that there is one tip, at least that for me, I really think that changed the idea of Bible study for me because I particularly didn't enjoy it. And that sounds weird when you're talking about a preacher who doesn't always enjoy Bible study. But over time, it can kind of become like a job. It can kind of become something that you feel like you have to do. And so I want to talk this morning about one tip that for me helped revitalize my Bible study. I always wanted to have the attitude that the psalmist did. When you read Psalm 119 and you see what the psalmist writes about scripture and about study, he has some things I think that are really interesting. Psalm 119, if you've ever read it cover to cover, is a, is a chapter that is all about the psalmist expressing his love for God's word. That's kind of it in a nutshell. And some of the things that he says in Psalm 119, I wanted to feel in my own life. For instance, when he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 103, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, I love your commandments, 127 verses 128. Above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. I wanted to have this attitude. And I would imagine that as Christians, we all want to have this attitude. We all want to kind of get in the zone where, like David says, you, get, you, you don't look at Bible study as something you have to do or something that you should do, but something that you get to do. And I think the best way that we do that is by realizing the value of it. You know, oftentimes as preachers, you talk to people about the necessity of prayer. You talk to people about the necessity of attending services, the necessity of coming to Bible class and people will hear that over and over and over again. And, and like all of us, we hear that over and over again, but it doesn't really click until we see the value of it. When we start to see the value of what weekly fellowship is like, something that all of us, I would argue, became very acquainted with the last year, 
But when you start to see the value of worshiping together, when you start to see the value of Bible study, to me, that changes everything. And I think that's the biggest deal with Bible study, at least that's, at least that's my opinion. Uh, if I were to ask, and, and you can feel free to change your mind, you can feel free to raise your hand and say something different, but for me, the one tip that changed Bible study for me is to see yourself in the story. I believe firmly, I'm a, I'm a history guy, I love history. The best thing about history to me is to put yourself into the story and see what you would have done differently. And you can do this with every war on the planet. You can look at famines, you can look at political interactions, and you can think to yourself, how would I have reacted if I had done, or if I had been there? We actually just finished a class at Hillside called What If? And it's all about looking at alternate storylines of scripture. What if David had not killed Goliath? What if Saul had killed David? What would the landscape of the Bible have looked like? And we try to keep that obviously very scriptural because it can kind of fly off the handle. But to see yourself in the story to me is the best way to do that. Uh, the Bible is, in my opinion, a very character-driven story. You can talk about the doctrines, you can talk about theologies, you can talk about these things, but to me it's a character-driven story. If you were to draw a straight line from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you have events and you have things that take place, but you have people that fundamentally make up that story. It starts with Adam and Eve, it goes to Abraham, then it goes to Moses, then it goes to David, then it goes to Daniel, and it goes all the way through New Testament, which is the biggest character, which is Jesus. And so as a character-driven story, it makes sense that we would also see ourselves in the story and see where we would have reacted had we been along those, in those um, stories as well. So I've got four points. This will probably go very quick or will be very long, depending on the audience interaction. If you like a short class, then feel free to just hang back and not say anything. Uh, but I've got four points that, to me, kind of help reiterate this. Number one, how do, you, how do you see yourself in the story? How do we accomplish this? The first way that I believe that we do this is by using your senses. I want you to look at Mark, the fourth chapter, real quick. It's a story that I think a lot of us are familiar with. It's in, I think, two of the Gospels. I can't remember if it's in a third one. John kind of is out there by himself in terms of context and stories. But in Mark, the fourth chapter, you have a story that is about Jesus calming the waters. And this is not a story that I think is unfamiliar to a lot of us. A lot of us use this um, in sermons or in Bible classes primarily to illustrate the idea of faith. I've made the point before in sermons, I'm sure Brent, I'm sure Jacob have as, has as well, that you can chastise Peter all you want for eventually sinking. But I think the point needs to be made that he actually got out of the boat in the first place. It's when he took his eyes off of Jesus that he started to sink. And I think this story is really powerful, and I think it's a great story that deals with faith, but it seems kind of unrelatable, doesn't it? Because after all, how many of us are ever going to be on a boat next to Jesus and with the storms and everything happening and then expect to see the creator of the world get up and calm all that? That doesn't seem like it's an event that's going to happen. And so when we see some of these far-off topics, these things that we never think will ever come upon our lives, we tend to just kind of shoot past that and then look at the apostles and say, yeah, I can't believe you didn't believe that God would have saved you. God's obviously not going to let you die. But when you put yourself in the story and use your senses to kind of see yourself, I think it brings it just a little bit home. I want you all to do something real quick. I don't want you to look at your Bible. What I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. Now, if you're going to fall asleep, please don't. I'll ask you that first. But I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to listen to what Mark says in this passage. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. 
And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the seas obey him. Hopefully, as you heard that story, hopefully as you thought about those events and the, and the winds and the waves, you felt yourself in the story. It's very fitting, I think, in our minds to put ourselves in the boat and feel the, the wind and feel the, the water that's rushing in the boat and feel that terror. Because I think when we feel that terror and we see those environments happening around us, we kind of see where the apostles were at in this point. It's very easy for us to look back on this and say exactly like they said, how did you not have any faith? He created the entire universe, according to Colossians 1, which hadn't been written yet. But he created the entire universe. How do you not believe that he's going to save you too? And then you see yourself in the story and you feel the wind pushing in on you. And these are experienced fishermen. You feel the wind pushing in on you. You see the water that is rushing in the boat. And you think maybe at some point this is going to be some kind of test that maybe God is allowing this to happen, or maybe he has some kind of supernatural calming ability that I don't have. I would wager, ladies and gentlemen, every single one of us, if we were in that boat, would react the exact same way that they did. And they themselves admit it when afterwards they say, when Jesus says, why did you have no faith? They say, who is this guy? Who is this person? All of us would say that. You have to remember that the apostles and Jesus had only had a relationship maybe one year at this point, maybe a year and a half, two years at most. And even though they had seen all sorts of things, when you feel the wind and the waves crushing in on you, your faith starts to waver. And that's where we are in everyday life. Because as easy as it is for us to look at these people and say, I can't believe you had no faith, we do the exact same thing in our life. When the doctor comes in and he tells us news that we don't want to hear, when we get a letter in the mail about our mortgage that is behind payments and we start to feel those things, we start to worry about it. After we say all these 10-second prayers we talked about last night, we pray and we pray and pray, and we still don't feel ourselves being free from this temptation, we feel the exact same way they did. And so when we put ourselves in the story and use our senses to really feel what's happening in the story, I think it changes the game for us. I want you to do something else. I want you to insert your name in the story. You don't have to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14, because this is the story that I think a lot of us are familiar with. I've been to... Um, what I call Osteen Mania down in Houston, Texas, where Joel Osteen has this massive staple center shrine to himself. And down at the bottom, as you walk in, as these, these massive front doors that are easily 30 feet tall, you have a, a statue with Joel and Paul, his dad, Osteen, right there. And right above his statue is the words that says, for I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and not to worry. I kind of paraphrase that. Is anybody familiar with that verse? If you've watched any of Joel Osteen's sermons, you know exactly what he talks about. It's kind of mentioned every time. Does anybody know where that passage comes from? It comes from Jeremiah 29. Does anybody know what's happening in that story? If you don't, that's fine. That's kind of the idea of why Osteen uses it. What's happening in Jeremiah chapter 29 is he's talking to a remnant. So in Jeremiah 29, you have this remnant that is going off into captivity. Jeremiah is a very depressing book. It's a very sad book. But Jeremiah 29 is positioned as an element of hope. I know the plans I have for you. You're going to go into captivity, but don't be worried because you're going to come back. That's the essence of that. 
And so to put that in a little bit of caveat for this lesson this morning, there are some times where it doesn't fit to put ourselves in Scripture. There are some prophetic applications. There are some things that are contained within the pages of our Bible that it doesn't make sense to insert our name into Scripture. But I would argue that there are a lot of times in Scripture where it makes perfect sense to do that. Primarily when you're talking about direct exhortation passages in the New Testament, when you're talking about the Psalms in the Old Testament where David seems to just exalt the glories of God over and over again. And to me, you see this at least in one place in Hebrews, the 13th chapter. I know Brent is the big Hebrews buff, so maybe he can correct me on this or maybe he can just get up and finish the classroom if he wants to. <clears throat> but in Hebrews chapter 13, I, I, love, I love what happens. And I, not, not to step on his toes, I love Hebrews. I think it's a fascinating book. Because what you have in Hebrews is 10 and a half chapters roughly of really intense Old Testament theology that finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. And you have all these depictions of the high priest. And you have these depictions of the, the sacrifices and the temple and all these things and how they find their fulfillment in the New Testament. And that's a very specific and a very personal application because as the name of the book implies, it is primarily written to Hebrews. And so I would argue too that most of what you read in Hebrews is a lot of what Paul talked about when he went into these synagogues and he would explain to them who Jesus was from the scriptures. I think you see a lot of that in Hebrews. But right about the midpoint of Hebrews 10, he switches gears and he moves from a direct theological application to more practical exhortations. And that's where you see the example of the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But if you can put yourself in the story, kind of what we just talked about, if you put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew, what you know going into this book is that there's a lot of persecution that exists among your own people. Never forget that at least in the first two centuries of Christian history, the hottest persecution did not come directly from the Roman Empire. It came from other Christians and Jewish zealots. And so if you're a Jew in the first century, Hebrews has a magnificent amount of application because you need to be firm and strong in your faith. That's why he spends so long digesting all this. So then he gets to Hebrews chapter 13, and this is where he kind of ties a nice bow on all of his practical applications. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 5. He says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Those are two absolutely beautiful verses. They carry over from passages in the Old Testament a little bit. But those are absolutely two beautiful verses that talk about exhorting us to continue pushing forward in faith. And even though we look at it as just kind of generic applications, the conversation changes just a little bit when you put your name in there. I'm going to use my name. I'm not going to ask anybody else to use theirs. But as I'm reading this, I want you to insert your own name and act as if the Hebrew writer is talking to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 again. Brady Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert Brady and I will never forsake you, Brady, so that I may confidently say, the Lord is Brady's helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Do you see how the tone changes when you make it a distinctly personal application? And you can't do this with every passage. That's why we brought up Jeremiah chapter 29. I do not believe Jeremiah 29 is just this blanket application to everybody in the universe. The theme is fine. But when you're talking about passages like Hebrews 13 that are talking about pushing forward, it makes total sense. And you can do this all over the place with the Psalms. One of the best places to do this is in Psalm 23 when he says the Lord is Brady's helper. Brady will not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. I will not be afraid of anything. 
When you insert your name into the scripture, it takes this book that applies to everybody and makes it specific to you. Jump down to verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 17. Obey your leaders, Brady, and submit to them. For they keep watch over my soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for me. Pray for us so that we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you, Brady, all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ, my Lord, equip me in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It moves from this practical exhortation style to exhortations about me and discipline for me to do what? Obey my leaders and submit to them. And all of us at various points in time have a really hard time with this passage because we don't want to always submit to our leaders. We don't always want to think that they have our best interests at heart. But why does he say that we should submit to our leaders? Anybody know from that passage? There's two reasons he gives. So you've got a 50-50 shot or 200% shot. I don't know what the math is on that. Why does he say we should submit to our leaders? They watch out for our souls, exactly. And if I'm standing before God on my eternal judgment day on how I help other people, you better best believe I'm gonna do my best to help that guy get to heaven. Has my best interest at heart. Why else does he say that we should submit to our leaders? Exactly, to help make it easier and not make it a complete drag on them. Uh, Elders, at least the elders at Hillside, I know elders by and large have a very tough and very thankless job and so it behooves all of us to kind of be, make it easier on them than it is. And deacons know this as well, by the way. If you've been a deacon for any length of time, you know how thankless a job it can be. And so it behooves us as regular members to just, at the very least, do what we can to make it easier on them. But I think the main reason is what was mentioned by our brother here, because we know that they have our best interests at heart. I don't know of any of us that would honestly think that our elders are out to get us. Now, I've met some elders that I've kind of wondered a little bit, not that I work with directly, But we wonder from time to time, does this guy really care about me? Because I don't know the decisions that he makes. I don't know why they decided this. And then we look at it a little bit further. And then we see the whole kind of picture. We get the whole scene. And I think it makes a little bit more sense to us. So when you insert your name into Scripture, and you can do this in a variety of different passages. We've talked about Hebrews. We've talked about Psalms. But when you insert your name into the story, it takes this blanket book that applies to everybody, and it makes it specific to us. Somebody have any thoughts or comments on any of that real quick? I have really bad peripheral vision, so I'm not trying to exclude the wings. I think the third thing that we can do is you can travel the Bible. Has anybody ever been to Israel, Jericho? We've got a few over here. None on this side. You guys need to pick up the slack. I have never been to Israel. I've never been over. I've been overseas a few times. I've been to Africa. I've been to the Philippines. I know other people here have traveled various places. But one thing you realize when you go overseas, and especially when you go over to Israel, is that the topography of that area is almost a part of the character of the place as the people that you meet. For instance, when you go over to the Philippines, you go over to Africa, the the very makeup of the land dictates their everyday life. If it's a largely agrarian area, if it's a largely tropical area, you can see the culture kind of reflect that. I mentioned last night that I'm from West Texas, and when you look at West Texas, you see all the plains, you see all the dry open scapes and the big kind of skies that just you know, radiates great sunsets and great, great sunrises. It, it forms a part of you. 
you come here to Arkansas, and my ears popped about 400 times before I'd even pulled into the town itself. The, the town changes you. And I think we have a tendency to look at Scripture, and we look at the Bible lands as just kind of being this massive, homogenous scope of land where you had the Jordan River, and you have the Dead Sea, and it was parted a couple times, and they just kind of move, and they just walk in a straight line. And in reality, it's really, really different. For instance, when you look at the story of um, the story of the Good Samaritan, most of us are familiar of that, with that parable, and it mentions in that parable that a man went down, I might have this direction backwards, but a man went down from Jerusalem towards Jericho to worship. Now, we just pass right by that because we don't think anything of it. That's how we talk in Dallas. You go down to San Antonio, you go down to Houston. They didn't mean geographer, they didn't mean directionally, they meant elevation-wise, because when you look at the topography of Judea at large, it is not this just kind of blanket area where you just kind of walk in a straight line and then you move in there. It is a very diverse area. At some points, you may think that you're in the middle of the Garden of Eden. At some other places, you may think you're in the middle of the desert. But what you see, at least from this picture, is that it goes up and then it goes down. There's hills, there's rocks, there's caves, there's all these different things. The moral of the story is there's a lot of places for robbers to hide out and kill you on your way from Jericho to Jerusalem. As a side note, that's what makes the story, I preached on this last week, that's what makes the story about the road to Emmaus so powerful, is that these men who went seven miles towards um, Emmaus and wanted Jesus to stay with them, then turned around and made seven-mile trek back in the middle of the night to go tell the apostles about this risen Lord. When you look, for instance, at 1 Samuel chapters 19 through 26, roughly, you have this whole story of David evading Saul, and he evades Saul for 20 years. Well, why is that? Because if you're familiar with the topography of the land, then you know that he can go from cave to cave, and there's all these backdoor caves where he can slide in between. It becomes a very diverse area, and it becomes almost as part of the story as the story itself, if I can use that phrase. I like what one writer had to say. He said, the Bible contains references to hundreds of place names, in addition to several scores of mountain names, water names, desert wilderness names, regional names, territorial names, and the like. Even beyond these casual spatial references, there are numerous occasions when geography is tellingly employed, keep in mind that, tellingly employed as the interpretive axis around which the narrative itself revolves, in which case geography functions as a nexus of interpretation. Now, if you're like me, you got through the first half of that, okay, no problem there. Then they start using words like nexus and axis and your eyes kind of glaze over and you move on. But what he's essentially saying is that the, the makeup of the story becomes as much a part of the story as the characters that are involved. I'm a big fan of character studies. We'll talk about that a little bit more during the lesson. I'm a big fan of character stories. I love characters in the Bible. I love them a lot. I, I love building lessons around them. But when we do that, we forget about the geography. And we forget, for instance, the fact that most of the entirety of the Bible stories, almost all of it, until you get to the later part of the book of Acts, happens in an area that is no bigger than North Texas, no bigger than half the state of Arkansas. We tend to think about you know, Jonah getting on a boat and going to Tarshish and going halfway around the world. He really did. But it's still not that big of a place. It all happens really close to each other. And so if you're having trouble seeing yourself in the story, in my opinion, one of the best things you can do is think about the Bible geography and think about the Bible lands. And today with businesses like Appian Media, you have all these books, you can really kind of get a feel for what they went through. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 125 and verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people this time, I'm sorry, from this time forth and forever. 
That's a direct illustration on the geography of the land to depict the over-encompassing arms of God around us. I think it's a powerful image once we understand a little bit more about this. Number four. Not travel the Bible lands. You can already do that. This will probably be, I don't know, arguably the most controversial thing I'll say all day. Contrary to the controversial things said last night. I'm a big fan of controversial things, apparently. I believe that one of the best things we can do for Bible study is to antagonize the text. I was talking with Brent yesterday about the training program that him and Jacob do, and he mentioned that one of his favorite things is when Jacob gives them a topic to discuss, and they kind of argue about it, kind of play the devil's advocate about a certain topic. And I personally think that's one of the best ways to study something. When I was going through my training program, we would set up debate-style formats where we would have me versus a preacher that was 20, 30 years older than me, which was absolutely never fair, no matter how you slice it. But the whole point of it was is to take a topic like baptism and examine it from the opposite viewpoint. And so if you've ever wondered where most of our charismatic Calvinistic friends are coming from, most of the people that we interact with on a daily basis, it would be a great idea to argue from the point that baptism is not necessary. Because you'll do two things. Not only will you get a better understanding of where they're coming from, but you'll get a better understanding of how to talk to them. I love in Acts the 8th chapter, whenever you have Philip and the eunuch, because it mentions that when Philip runs up alongside the eunuch, the instructions from the Holy Spirit are to go up and join the chariot. But Philip really doesn't do that, does he? Philip runs up to the chariot, hears that he's talking from Isaiah 53, reading from it, and then beginning from that scripture explains Jesus to him. The only way that he could take that approach is if he knew what he was coming from in the first place. And when we antagonize the text and we look at it from a critical standing then it helps us to get a little bit deeper in our Bible understanding. We have a tendency sometimes to just say baptism is necessary, baptism is necessary. And I agree with that 100,000%. But why is that? And have we ever questioned that? I've met Christians, and I can be guilty of this too from time to time, but I've met Christians that are in the 70s or 80s that have never once questioned why baptism is necessary. What does it mean? And yet the Bible encourages us to antagonize the text all the time. When you look, for instance, at Joshua chapter 24, If you're already there because it's up on the board, you just have to wait for me. Sometimes I have to go to the table of contents. I'm not ashamed of it. Joshua 24, this is Joshua's big farewell address. And I always like like how often the leaders, especially of early Israel, remind the people how horrible they are. And Joshua does this on at least a couple occasions. Moses does this in the latter chapters of Deuteronomy. Tells them, you guys are obstinate, you're stubborn. I'm not even really like you that much. And Joshua kind of does that a little bit here in chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 24, you have this magnificently huge statement that people have cross-stitched and put up in their living room, fear the Lord, ask for me in my house. But the context of that is important. In Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord." Now, that's a blanket statement. That's something you'll see in a lot of pages of Scripture. But Joshua doesn't stop there, does he? Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he has them tested out. He says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why does Joshua arrive at that conclusion? Joshua doesn't just say that because he thinks, oh, what we need to do is we all need to serve God, and you need to serve God, you need to serve God, we all need to serve God. It's not what he says. And yet sometimes as Christians, we say, well, you should come to services because you should come to services. 
You should pray and read the Bible because Christians pray and read the Bible. That's what we should be doing. That's not what Joshua says here. What does Joshua say in this passage? Joshua says, I want you to make a choice. And if it is disagreeable to you to serve God after everything you've seen, then go over into the gods of the Amorites and see what they're all about. I want you to investigate their life, their worship, their culture, and you make a decision about which one is best for you and your family. But as for me and my house, based on what I have seen, we will serve the Lord. And in case you think this is an Old Testament thing, Peter does exactly the same thing in 1 Peter, I think the second chapter, where he says, desire the pure, sincere milk of the word if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he's writing that book, or he's writing that chapter in the middle of a book that is all about persecution. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you desire the sincere milk of the word. I want us to antagonize the text. I never want us to get to a point where we lose faith completely. That's obviously not the idea but we need to have a real solid standing about why we believe what we believe. And one of the best ways we can do that is by antagonizing the text and asking us, why do I believe this? Do I really believe the earth was created in seven days? Do I really believe that Jesus came and died and was resurrected? Do I really believe that? I'm gonna investigate the scriptures to find out. One of the most famous apologists of at least the last 50 years is Lee Strobel. And this is exactly how Lee Strobel came to faith in the first place. It was because Lee Strobel was trying to argue against his wife and argue that the Bible is just a bunch of garbage. And so he investigated the scriptures, poured over them to try and see what his wife believed. And in the end, he didn't come up with one volume, but two volumes called A Case for Faith. And in those books, he talked about why he believes that God is who he says he is based on what he investigated through scripture. It's one of the most powerful Bible study techniques you can have, as long as we're approaching it from an attitude of honesty and simplicity. That's all I have. Are we stopping at 9.38 because that's the time? <laughs> Does anybody have any thoughts or comments on that? I don't want to leave the floor undone. Okay, that's all that I have. This extra seven minutes is on me. Thank you, guys.